Kazo, Kazo, Kazo. Long time. I love the background, by the way. People on the audio recording won't see this, but Kazo is always mixing it up with a uh, a little green screen action. And his green screen today is what appears to be some noodle making. <laughs> yeah, man, this is your episode. And we're going to get into it probably straight okay. away. Talk about the Yamato. But behind me is, you know, my old Yamato. So I just wanted to <laughs> put it in there for theme's sake. Nice, nice, of course. Yes. All right, this man needs no introduction, and as soon as I hit record, he started talking. So we're going to try something new here and just go straight through the entire episode unedited and unabridged i mean mike can talk he likes to talk so i hope you enjoy it here we go all right well yeah welcome to the one and only ramen lord uh you might know who he is just as mike um but yeah lots to talk about i think i mean you've been on several episodes before on multiple platforms but it's always a treat to like just talk ramen with you yeah, man. And uh, I love talking ramen. I'm happy to be here. So, you know, I- I'm not really sure. I-, I feel like you had an agenda when you invited me, but I'm happy <laughs> to talk about whatever is going on in the world of ramen. I suppose that mine is a little different than maybe it was last we spoke, right? Yeah. I mean, I think about you every single day. <laughs> probably, probably mutual, candidly. I'm like, I wonder what Kazo's up to today. <laughs> Yeah, but for real, you got a noodle machine in your living room. What's going on? Yeah, so <laughs> let's talk about that. Uh, okay, so I guess, I don't know, for the introductions, for those who don't, who are new to the podcast, right? Because, okay, so you bring a new audience. Uh, my name is Mike Satinover. People on the internet call me Ramen Lord. I've been making ramen basically at home, but occasionally in pop-ups for like the last 12 years. I think that it's like Kazo and I go way back. I feel like Kazo... Kazo knew me when no one knew me, basically. So uh, the the our growth, I think, as, as ramen craftsmen has just continuously evolved. And I am very inspired by people like Kazo who pushed the boundaries and pushed this a lot. And one of the largest things of ramen making, of course, is noodle making. And so I have been making noodles forever. You know, it was one of the first things that I did as part of the craft. But as you start doing it bigger and bigger batches, it starts being more and more difficult to do it at home with your rinky dink pasta machine, which is what I was usually using. It was like a Mercado Atlas 150, which I recommend for most home cooks. If you're a home cook, you know, don't go crazy. Just get something simple that you can do it with. Well, how many of those machines did you go through? Not many, honestly, like maybe two. Okay. Honestly, not too many. I, I, I mean, let's be candid that like the style of noodle that I was making was easier on the machine than I think a lot of people are doing too. So, you know, higher hydration, whatever. But the point of no return was just that I started doing these events and started thinking about, am I going to open a shop or not? And I just kind of felt like making noodles just was the craftiest of the craft when it came to the experience. Like certainly you can, you need to make the soup and making the tire is pretty important. I think but you can get away with using, you know, shirodashi in your tare or, you know, pre-made ingredients and still feel like 
you're kind of putting something unique into the bowl, but the competition right now for noodles is pretty sparse, particularly in Chicago. And so if you really want to stand yeah. out, you kind of have to do your own thing. And so we were making, I've been making noodles for pop-ups for the last couple of years and just felt like the quality was just absurd. And as part of the evolution of my craft, it just made sense to be like, I need something that's going to get me to that next level, especially if I want to open a shop. So I bought this machine in October. Um, I bought it directly from Yamato. 2021. Is it? 2021. Yep. Uh, the idea was that I was going to have a shop open by then, but you know, plans don't always work out. It's yeah. Fine. We'll get to that later, <laughs> <laughs> but don't do it, man. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so there are a lot of machines. Yamato makes a number of machines and there are other machine manufacturers as well. I don't particularly know why I selected Yamato. It just, they were the easiest to get in touch with and they have a lot of, the certifications and the ops. And this one also in particular plugs into a 110 volt outlet, which means you can plug it into like any wall anywhere. You don't need any special electric equipment or rerouting, which is kind of nice for versatility. Um, in yeah. addition, it's like the entry level one. So it's the cheapest one they make, <laughs> uh, which is good because I am cheapskate, uh, relatively speaking. So it just felt like the obvious choice and you know, I, I reached out in October and it took a long time to get here, you know, with COVID and with the supply chain issues, it took well over six months to, to finalize and get into the United States. And a lot yeah, of that I think, was like, well, let's talk about that for the listeners who are interested in buying one, because, you know, not only COVID, but as soon as you sort of put down the money to buy one, I think they start building it right at that moment. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's not something like where they have like a car dealership where they have a bunch of machines on the lot they basically you know just start building it as soon as you make payment and they build it to your specifications correct and they won't start until you pay them half so you need to have <laughs> the cash and you need to have it up front and it's not cheap right i think that yeah these things are like cars basically so you have to have the cash readily available but it's brand spanking new and it's built for you. So you don't have to feel like it was just sitting in a lot somewhere collecting dust basically. But yeah, it takes a lot of time. Um, but the original plan was that it would go into a shop and then we would get through that and have it ready and then open. And then those plans fell through, but I still had paid for the machine at that point. So what was a, what was a fella to do but figure out what to do with this machine? The original plan was just to toss this thing in some warehouse somewhere and just like, I don't know, maybe just keep it in storage, but that kind of felt wasteful. Yeah. So I was like, well, if I can put it in my apartment, I can just have it in my apartment. <laughs> and Dude, uh, I mean, I would have done the same thing. That's like, I know to awesome. be honest, like when I was doing it, I was like, hmm, Kezo has this in his garage. So <laughs> I was like, if Kezo can have noodle machines in his garage, I can have a noodle machine in my apartment. This is like one in the same in a lot of ways, right? Like I'm just following in the steps of our Supreme leader over here. So I was like, well, it's like not unheard of. <laughs> Somebody's done it before. <laughs> <laughs> and that somebody is Kezo. So I was like, I just got to do it. And so I figured out if the, the there's a lot of weird stuff you got to think about when you put a machine into a, a medium rise apartment. And Kezo's been to my apartment, so he knows it's like, it's like kind of big, but it's not like a huge high rise. But I live right now in like a converted loft style apartment. So the it's got, it's like, it was designed to be a manufacturing facility and then it was converted into living situations. So 
on the camera, you can see this, but for those listening, there's like big wooden beams, like in my ceiling. And this place used to have like lots of manufacturing in it in the early 1900s. So I needed to figure out if the floor could support the weight of this machine. I thought it could, but it's like, and then I needed to figure out, could I get this machine into the apartment, which is another concern, right? Cause it's, it's compact, but it's still, it's a beefy machine. It's like a 600 pound machine, you know? So yeah, those, those rollers that they have on the Yamato are no joke. They are they're like no solid, joke, solid steel. I have stories about those rollers too, by the way, but we'll get to those. Yeah. They're the beefy. It's so beefy. Um, and it's very compact. I don't know how it works on just 110 volts, but you know, once we found out you could get it into the apartment, then it was like just making sure we could uncrate it, which was like the most terrifying experience of my life. Imagine oh, yeah. if you will spending the equivalent of a car to get this thing delivered to an apartment, which is ridiculous. And then them having to figure out how to get this thing out of a wooden box and it's like on stilts and it's like kind of nailed in and the guy who's doing it has never done this. In his wait, wait. So did you uncrate it in the apartment? No, 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 no. Oh, we okay. uncrated it outside. A funny yeah, story about that is that the, the first time we uncrate, the first time I got it, the trucking company that Yamato had hired actually showed up at my apartment without a way to get it off the truck. So they just had yeah. two wood boxes and they were like, I just told to bring this here. And then I was like, do you see any jacks or any like ways to get this off of your truck right now? What are you doing, man? This thing weighs like a ton. <laughs> so it's like, send it back to the warehouse and we'll figure this out on Monday. Yeah. Well, I, I had that same experience, uh, not with the Yamato, but with, you know, another piece of equipment that somebody brought it in a truck and it had no lift gate. So they had yeah. to call another truck with a lift gate and back it up to it to get it off of that truck. Dude, it's just, yeah. It's yeah. like the logistics of this are actually quite surprising. You would think that this would be like pretty nailed out, but it's not, it's like, there's a lot of weird mistakes that happen along the way. And in fact, I, I hadn't even originally thought about the uncreating process. So I just got lucky because I was talking to a chef friend of mine one day and he was like, dude, that's going to come in some heavy ass crates. You're going to need to figure out how to get this off of the truck. Yeah. But we did. And then it's on wheels. So like rolling it around is not too bad. So we just rolled it into the elevator basically. And then up into the apartment it went. And so far my apartment has not collapsed. So it looks like it's doing well. Well, it's a good thing you had an elevator. Yeah. I mean, well, now I'm kind of stuck in this apartment, right? So like, please landlord, don't jack the rent up on me. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a nice apartment. I mean, pretty cool, man. Yeah. Kazo has been to this cool. apartment. Pretty cool bachelor pad. Yeah, just chilling, <laughs> just chilling, you know. Uh, Keso has been to this apartment, actually. Um, I've made him miso ramen here. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to figure out on this machine. There's a lot of interesting stuff with the world of industrial or commercial level noodle creation. Do you know what I mean? I'm sure Keso does, but I suspect yeah, many I people at home do not. I think, you know, just seeing your stories recently and all the stuff that you're noticing that are different from, you know, having that Yamato, it's that that's kind of what I want to talk about today. Sure. Because it it is like for that home cook to go to from that Mercado to a Yamato, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be transitioned, you know. Tons, tons. And I'm still learning. So like Obviously, Keizo, you know way more about this than I do because you have so much more experience working with these machines. But I've learned a lot in the last couple of months just tinkering around and figuring this out. So it's been quite the experience. I would not say it's been pleasurable <laughs> to learn. 
If only because, you know, and this is going to sound kind of like I have hubris, but I've been making ramen for a long time and I kind of felt like I knew what I was doing. And this machine has very much humbled me in a lot of ways in terms of a lot of what you think works does not work in this setting. Yeah. A lot of your recipes don't work. A lot of the things you need to pay attention to and you need to focus on and you need to be uh, disciplined in are not a concern uh, in, in other settings. And of course, it's big. So the size has impact on this. And I think that any home cook who has thought about making ramen for more than like 10 people has probably run into similar issues where scaling up is always a challenge. Even with appropriate equipment, it's always just different, right? Like yeah. making soup for four people is not the same experience as making soup for a hundred people. It's a very different experience. And the same is true for noodles, right? Like the amount of control you can have in a small amount is, is much more uh, specific and specified than with a large one, like a, a Yamato Richmond one, which this is the small machine, right? They make way crazier ones. I, I don't know. Yeah. So where do you begin, right? <laughs> where do I begin? <laughs> where do so, I begin? So walk us through the process of, okay, you unwrapped the machine, rolled it up to your apartment, uh, started getting ready. I saw you gaining like ingredients. Mm -hmm. wherever you get them and then let's talk about that first time you ever turned it on what was that feeling so like? the first time i turned it on was just to, like see it move which is kind of bizarre to say like I, I wheeled this thing into my apartment and i had obviously did not have enough flour to do anything with it so i did, just did not have the ingredients so i just kind of left it in my apartment and peeled off all the stickers and tape and protective coatings and stuff that are on it which is like an oddly satisfying thing to do obviously on a machine it's kind of like unwrapping a present, but then I didn't really have anything to use it with. So I just kind of like left it in my apartment for a couple of days. Eventually I just got really curious about what this thing was like and how loud it was. So I just like plugged it in and ran the mixer empty for a little bit and then ran the rollers just to hear like what it sounded like. But I hadn't really made noodles on it for like a week. I had to reach out to some suppliers to get an appropriate amount of flour, knowing that this thing really, you can do small batches on it, but it's better in the mixer to do at least four kilograms of flour. Like that's the minimum. And some would argue that it's different than doing 10 kilograms. I've certainly noticed that depending on the amount of flour you have in the hopper, yeah. the texture is different. So that what size said, is your mixer? 10 kilograms. Okay. Yeah, that's the one that comes standard. And that's pretty, that's decent. I mean, it's not like huge, but it uh, it's okay. It does the job. I mean, that's like a hundred portions, give or take, assuming you're not wasting a bunch of portions, which like candidly I was the first couple of times. <laughs> yes. Because again, like there's all this stuff that you're just not used to at home. Like you have much more flex at home. It's like, oh, I want to do 10 portions. So I'll do 11 I'll do 11 and then I'll lose one and it's fine, right? It's like a little wasteful, but it's not that hard to do an additional one. Here it's like, okay, I need to do a hundred portions and this thing hits 10 kilograms. So how am I going to do that? I got to be really specific or like, and the waste is just much more impactful there. So again, I'm rambling because I'm like looking at the machine right now, <laughs> thinking about all the ways that I've used this, but basically I ran it empty and just wanted to hear it. And it's actually pretty quiet. I tell people that when I run this thing, it sounds kind of like a KitchenAid mixer in terms of its loudness. It's not particularly loud, which is great because I didn't want to annoy my neighbors. And also I just don't need like a super loud device if it's sitting in my apartment or even in a restaurant, right? Like if you want to be making noodles during service as a noodle guy, you don't want it like bolting around the dining area. So it's, it's pretty quiet and it's obviously super efficient. So I noticed that and 
Then yeah, I just realized, in case you know a listener wants to put one in their apartment too. I would say that <laughs> it's pretty I would say quiet. That, yeah, so I would say ninety percent <laughs> don't don't do this. Like you should not do this. Don't do this unless you're doing a business. Basically, like you can make amazing noodles at home without this machine. This machine is for volume primarily. Like you're doing this because you need to get the volume in. I could not fulfill the pop-ups or the restaurant with a Mercado or with a hand crank. It's just not possible. You can't do the volume. So you yeah. need a machine like this to do that. And it's still hard, right? Like I, I know I was listening to your podcast episode with, um, uh, you know, with Steven and he was saying similarly, like, it's hard, like, it's just hard. It's hard to make noodles, but yeah, I digress. It's harder to do it by hand than it is to do it by this machine. So it's like, you're, you are still leveling up. Yeah. So definitely. At that point, I had this machine sitting there and I just decided I was talking to Ryan from uh, Oniatai and now Hokse, I think is what his restaurant's called. Yeah. Um, great guy. I was just trying to pick people's brains of people who had Yamados. And he mentioned to me that he would sometimes just do like small test mixes in a KitchenAid and then just roll it. And I was like, oh, that's a smart idea. Like why you don't need to use the mixer. You can use a, another thing to mix it and then just dump it into the rollers and see how it goes and do a small test batch. So that's what I did. I did like some kind of like Sapporo thing and it was fine. It was fine. Yeah. Like, that's what I would say. It was fine. I learned a lot of, I learned that it was difficult to clean. I learned that there was a lot of moving parts. I learned that. And I also learned that I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. And when I say that, what I mean is that you have to be very disciplined in using this machine because of its compact nature each of your moves and each of your pieces of the process can slow you down dramatically if you are not prepared. So as an example, the way the Yamato works is like any other machine in that it has these kind of rollers that look like spindles that hold the dough in place after it's been pressed. And these are just like these modular things that you can move between pressing and also receiving dough. So it kind of like receive it like a spool or it unwinds like a spool. But knowing where to place those in between steps is really critical for increasing your speed. And if you don't know, you're just kind of fidgeting around being like, how do I like set myself up? How do I get this in the right place? And it took a while to get comfortable with like the natural progression of the movements for each piece of the process. And I still don't know all of it. It takes, and that increases my time considerably in the amount of time it takes to make noodles. So there's a level of like learning the efficiency of using a machine like this that is not experienced at home because yep. you're doing a hundred portions. You're not just doing five, your level of efficiency with five, you just carry the dough, right? Can't do that with this machine. The dough is heavy. It's like, you need to be efficient with your body. And so the biggest learning I had as I started making more noodles is like, I am not efficient with this machine right now, right? Like, I don't know the moves. I don't know the process. I don't know. Well, like, did you even like know the process beforehand or are you, were you i mean you watch some people? videos and i've made noodles in big quantities before and so i had like a general idea but obviously not really so like you're starting with way more dough than you're used to working with which is just burdensome and heavy right you're not used to that weight as a yeah. as an individual and then you're trying to like get it to comply with the machine's criteria of dough which is also different for reasons I'll explain momentarily. And so you're, I'm, you're just not used to your body being in that position of like standing in front of this machine. How do you place certain items on the machine? How do you move the dough from one place to the other efficiently? How do you monitor things efficiently and position yourself in such a way to co course correct when things naturally go awry? Because 
as much as Yamato likes to claim this machine just does everything for you, it will not. Like it, it yeah. just does what it's told, right? Like if you mess up, you mess up. I always tell people the the machine does not care about you. It doesn't care if you're having a good day or bad day. It's like you turn it on and it rolls. And it's like it's gonna roll whatever you put in front of it. And I hope that you rolled it correctly. If you didn't, then it's messed up, but it's just doing what it's being told and it's doing it very well what it's being told to do. Do you know what I mean? So of course Keizo knows what I mean. He's done this before. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. we talked about with Steven on the Menu Rui podcast, you really can't take your eyes off of the roll because yes. if it tears and you're not watching it, you know, that roll will just take it through and just mangle it, mangle the dough. And then the your industry. dough is messed up. Yeah. And then your dough is like permanently messed up and not in like a way that's easily redeemable at all. So yeah, you can't reverse it and unwind. There, yeah, that's not like yeah. it's not like a Mercado where you can unwind it. Be like, whoops, made a mistake. It's like I initially had some problems where like when I was first learning the machine, I had stuff where like the roll was just tearing constantly. And so it's like the structure of the final noodle was all messed up and like crumbling and not ha didn't have like the rigidity and the tensile strength that you need because these small little mistakes just compound and compound and compound. I had yeah. issues where the, the initial compression wasn't accurate because in a home setting, you just open the gap as wide as you can and just like shove the dough in. In a Yamato, <laughs> you get to control it because the rollers are so beefy. It's like, they don't worry about, can we press the dough together? It's like, can we do it like accurately and correctly? Or we're gonna over compress the dough and have problems. So. You, your approach to making noodles foundationally starts to change when you use a machine of this size. It stops being about, you know, how do I make this, how do I make this dough like easier to press? Because the, the Yamato presses anything. It's so powerful. It's like, it doesn't care. It's just like shoves anything together. And in fact, the lower the water is, the easier it is to press. So it's like counterintuitive to what you might be doing at home where you're used to like soft, supple dough. This machine loves as Ernie mentioned this too on your podcast, everybody's mentioned this because it's the same theme. It's like, this machine is very good at pressing dough together. It's just super strong. It's so strong. So yeah. you just learn that like, it's about how do I curtail my style to what the machine can do as opposed to like, which was the opposite stuff that you were doing on a small scale. So it's very powerful and it does exactly what it's told even if you make mistakes, it will still keep doing what it's told. So you have to be disciplined the whole way through. And I think that was the second learning is like, and I think you mentioned this, it's like you have to be mindful. This is not a, it's marketed as a machine that takes all the work out, but you really have to be mindful of the, each phase of the process. Yeah. You gotta be watching that mixer to make sure that your Soboro is the right, like the right size because it will over mix it. And then you'll have big boulders that can be a problem. You need to watch the dough going into the rollers, even though you're not directly pressing the dough into the rollers, you got to make sure it's going in even because if you have uneven weak spots on the sides, those will compound into tears and issues down the line. You have to be aware of how you're starching. If you're over starching or under starching, this can be brutal to clean up if you're not using the right amount of starch later on. Especially in your apartment. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad I have like a Dyson, but it's just like crazy. Yeah. So like, that's another thing too. Like, starching is really critical obviously for certain noodles and you have to be aware of that so like if you make a really higher hydration noodle it's just gonna stick and it's easy to starch it at home you just have like 10 portions you just dust them but when you're doing a hundred of them it's it's much more difficult and you have to be very precise and thoughtful about each of the phases yeah similarly you have to be thoughtful about like 
silly things like how wide should the gap be or how fast should the roller be pressing during the initial compound press? Again, not a concern at all at home on an industrial piece of equipment, incredibly important, right? So like as an example, Yamato, I think recommends going slow on the initial compression. Yep. Their, their, their suggestion on this is that it develops more even dense structure in the final dough than if you go really fast. I found pragmatically, it's easier to, you know, maneuver the dough into the rollers when it's going slower. So that's helpful. Yeah. But I have also noticed that the noodles are turning out pretty dense when I go that way. So I do like that. But the negative is it takes more time. It's, it's slower, right? The, the machine, you can control the speed of the rollers, but it's slower now because you've, you've slowed down the process to do the structure building thing. You mentioned last podcast that I listened to that like Yamato says you can do a hundred portions in an hour and that's totally garbage. There's just no <laughs> way that that's true because as you mentioned, you have to rest the dough in yeah. a typical number of stages. Now, some chefs I've spoken to say that you don't need to necessarily rest it during the mixing phase, but this is a common technique in other dough applications. It's called auto lease. And the idea is that the protein enzymes, the protease in the flour begin to activate when you apply water to them and they snip at the gluten strands, which primes them to be developed into long tensile strands. So in some ways it can seem ideal to give the rest, but when you rest at this scale, the dough changes in meaningful and important ways that make it more difficult to use on the machine, particularly if you have higher hydration doughs, because water promotes gluten development and it makes the dough clump together in ways that are difficult to navigate. So you're just dealing with like huge overwhelming changes to the way that you manage the noodle that are never, ever, ever concerns at home. It's like a totally different thing. I'm lucky. Yeah. And then I've lived in both worlds. So I'm not totally oblivious and I can, and I've done this long enough that I can course correct and I've figured out things, but it's been a huge learning process the whole way through. It's just like, not even the same. It's like not the same world. It's just like, it's just different. And I think the biggest challenge for me, the last learning has just been Yamato tells you, you can do up to 40% hydration on this machine pretty easily, but what they don't tell you, or what's a little weird. And I kind of go goof about this is that they include salt and Kansu as part of the hydration. So if your recipe is 40 grams of water for every hundred grams flour and one gram salt and one gram powdered kansui, your hydration, according to them, is 42%. And this is not going to work on this machine, at least not without some muscle and like figuring it out, which, you know, I know some guys are figuring out certain <laughs> techniques, but it's very tough. It's super duper tough to do that kind of noodle on there. What they really should be saying is this, this machine doesn't do better than 38%, right? It's like salt does not hydrate dough it's it's not a hydrating mechanism it's yeah for for like the over 40 percent noodles they have the udon machine you know yeah is made machine. for the higher hydration i know and now i wonder because <laughs> i really like the high hydration stuff so i was like hmm, how do i feel about this so really it's just like how do you adjust the recipe to accommodate the fact that this is your reality now right there's a couple of things you can do that i've been tinkering with obviously you have to lower the water content like first and foremost you have to lower the water content you got to get below 38 yeah. Uh, you got to kind of, or you have to figure out your process a little bit better. The second thing you can do is reduce the protein content, perhaps uh, paradoxically in your noodle, right? Protein is particularly thirsty. And so it absorbs water more readily, but it also bonds to itself and creates 
a lot of tension in the dough and the rollers are so effective at developing gluten that you don't need as much to get really strong, really uh, well-developed noodles. I found that using even like all-purpose flour with a high enough amount of water makes an incredibly bounty dense noodle, right? At like 38%. Yeah. And you don't need all that additional protein. This was because if we think about how far back people were making noodles at home, you can't develop the protein as you can't develop the gluten as easily at home. You don't have the power. You just don't have that ability. So again, it's like you're living in a different world when you use a machine. Everything is different, right? I remember years ago when Eric and I were doing like something at Mochico, we were making, I think we were making Jiro noodles, which is kind of goofy, but we were doing it. And we were mixing the dough and I was like, okay, we probably need to rest the dough, right? It's pretty low hydration. He's like, no, 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 no. We're going to put this right into a roller. It's going to insta-hydrate. Yeah. It's like insta-hydrate is the term he used. <laughs> and that's true. It's like the dough that comes out of these rollers feels very hydrated. It feels more hydrated than any dough I've ever worked with at home because these rollers are extremely powerful and efficient. And so again, you don't need as much water to get the result that you're looking for. So basically what happened is once I started figuring out just the process, I then realized all my recipes were bunk, basically. Like the 20 to 30 different recipes I have for noodles are all bunk. And I need to rejigger all of them for this machine. Some of those are easier than others, but a lot of them are tough. Like I'm still working on the Sapporo recipe right well, now. Well, just to add something here, like I've worked with other noodle machines like my Taisei. Mm -hmm. um, what I've noticed about the Yamato is that the mixer is... It's, you know, they have the safety thing where it has to be sealed in order to move. And that creates some sort of like heat or it, it contains the heat in the mixer. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed that a Yamato gets, you know, a lot more humid within the mixer and yes. creating the dough to be more wet as opposed to like doing the same recipe in my Taisei. Mm -hmm. I have so, noticed as well. So for folks listening, if you use this mixer, it's got like kind of like a glass sealer at the top that's like a well basically that you can pour your wet into and it slowly drips the wet into the dry while it's mixing, which is pretty nice, kind of cool. I think most of the noodle machines have this kind of feature, but the negative is that to what Kezo said, you'll notice as this thing is mixing that like condensation appears on the top, on the surface of the machine, of, of, the, of the mixer basically. You can see these little like this damp wetness occurring at the top because water is not really escaping while this thing is mixing, but also it's getting warmer, right? The, the, the noodle is getting warmer yeah. in that mixer. And warm, and warm really creates a different type of noodle. Like, you yeah, know, as, I mean, as they say, it should be between like 22 degrees Celsius, 23 degrees, 24 degrees. So yeah, the science of that is particularly important, right? So you're pre-gelling some starch when it gets too warm. That is the starch is not just hydrating, but it's actually gelatinizing due to the heat. And when that happens, there's no going back. It's like trying to take a noodle that's cooked and then uncook it basically. You're not fully cooking the noodle, but you're structurally changing the way that the starch behaves in the noodle. The second thing you're doing is potentially denaturing protein, right? Again, gluten denatures under high heat and that's what gives it the final rigidity that you're looking for in the noodle that protein unwinds as you apply heat to it and creates the final structure that you're looking for. And so if you get too hot, you start to mess with the protein structure in the noodle too, which means that your noodle is gonna have a different texture. And maybe that's a good thing. Sometimes it's not a bad thing. Sometimes you want this, but it's something you have to think about that you didn't have to think about at home, right? And so it's not like the machine is just suddenly 
saying to me as it whispers into my ear at night when it looks over through my apartment, <laughs> you know, it's like you're screwed. But it's just like everything you thought you knew about making noodles is just foundationally quite different on these big machines. Uh, and I've noticed this is true on any machine. I want to be clear. Like, I, I really am glad I have a Yamato. All of these machines are different than making them at home. All of them, right? Like, it doesn't matter. Making noodles at scale is different than making it in non-scale. Just like making anything at scale is different than making it at non-scale. But I think you just don't know what that effect is going to be until you have to do it a couple dozen times and you're slowly learning the process. Yeah. Have On the plus used, side, oh, go ahead. Have you tried using like cold water or ice yes. water? So I use, I use refrigerated water right now to alleviate some of those concerns. So I, and I think that in general, like if you have the time as a restaurateur, it probably makes sense to batch out those, those portions of water and consuming and everything way in advance. So you don't have to be like measuring everything right before you're about to start mixing and going like, it's basically mise en place, right? So if you can mise it all out and put it in a walk-in and just have it cold, that's probably going to be awesome. That's going to be probably your best bet. I may or may not remember a certain guy named Keizo Shimamoto doing this. So <laughs> it's, it's kind of like a learning experience for me. Uh, yeah, just mise your stuff out. I remember that when I posted it on Instagram, like at my factory and you're like, why do you keep it in, in the fridge? <laughs> yeah. Because I didn't know because at home, it doesn't matter. You don't heat up the dough that much, right? Like yeah. room temperature water is usually sufficient, but Again, the industrial world is different. Everything is different, right? There's Especially also like, in the summer, you know, because with with it being more humid in, in New York, you know, it really changes. You can't use the same recipe during in the different seasons. Right. Sorry, I was saying a sip of coffee. So that is, it's just all different. All of it is different. The process in a nutshell feels similar, but you're doing a lot of different stuff to navigate the reality that scale comes with scale comes different challenges, basically. But I will tell you that once I started to figure it out, my noodle game has just been extraordinary. And it's not meant to be like a brag. It's just feel like foundationally, the noodles that are coming out of this thing are just awesome. Like, yeah, you definitely leveled up. I mean, like, it's not. I leveled no up. <laughs> so like, do I feel like I've nailed it? No. Like I made a Sapporo noodle a couple of days ago. Um, and it's way off. <laughs> it's not close. It's not close. The, the curls look good and the, but it's like not off. It's, it's way off. It's not, it doesn't have enough water. It's too firm. It's like, it's the constancy levels probably messed up. I had too much protein in the dough. So it's, it's very brittle in comparison to what I'm looking for. You always, it's just a new world. You just have to accept that like the machine has changed things for you in good ways and also in ways that you need to adjust to. But I'm excited for that learning experience. And I think when I make noodles on this, the noodles turn out well, like eventually they will turn out well. The one thing that I'm a little disappointed in, if I was to pick one specific thing is I love curly noodles. For folks who, have, who don't know who I am, I lived in Hokkaido for a year and that meant I ate a lot of Sapporo ramen. And Sapporo ramen is denoted as having a kind of curly yellow noodle, sometimes it has egg, but it's always kind of bouncy and it's almost always aged at room temperature. And this aging at room temperature gives it just like beautiful gloss and density. And I just love them. I love them so much. It's like my favorite style of noodle in the whole world. 
The problem with the Yamato is you can buy a cutter with a curly attachment and it works, but then you can't portion the dough that comes out of it. Like the way that the curly attachment works on the Yamato cutter. And I think this is probably true for most kind of small scale machines, but Kayla, correct me if I'm wrong, is basically there are these two silicone flaps that exist right after the teeth of the cutters. So if you ever had a pasta machine, you can imagine the way these cutters work because they're kind of like these two large wheels with gaps in them that intersect. And as the, as the dough sheet feeds through them, they kind of slit the dough into strands of noodles. There's also a device in the machine that then cuts the noodles to the particular length that you designated at. That's not really important for the purpose of how this cutter works, but it's an interesting facet. It's kind of cool. So the way that this machine works for the curling is there's these two silicon flaps that sit just after those teeth. So you can imagine there's strands that go into the teeth, they get turned into noodles that are straight, and then they hit these silicon flaps. And basically what happens is they just get stuck in the silicon flaps. They're kind of just <laughs> yeah. sitting in the silicon flaps. And then eventually more dough comes in and the, the noodles, which are now compressed in the silicone flaps, kind of get squeezed out, kind of like squeezing out toothpaste, basically, or something kind of stuck in a container. You're just kind of squeezing it out with the force of stuff going in. What this means, though, is that the noodles are not coming out in an even rate. It's like some are coming out in the middle, some are kind of coming out on the side. You don't have like a neat little bundle that you can just grab and put away. This is very common with straight noodles. It's like nice little Thing of noodles you just pick up and it's bundled and you can put it to the side for the curly ones it's like they're just all over the place they're just coming <laughs> yeah. out they're just coming out it doesn't care about you so it's like okay cool that's great like now i have to hand portion these basically in order to get this done i have not figured out how to do this more effectively maybe Kazo, you have ideas for me what i've just been doing is i just put a big bus tub underneath collect all of them and then figure out how to portion them later yeah it's a real pain in the ass um, but that takes never... long. That takes a long time, guys. Yeah. Like that's another hour of work potentially just to get all that portioning done. Right. Like we did this for the last pop up I did on Monday, where similarly we ran into a similar problem where we made really, really thick noodles. And to get the length I wanted for those noodles required cutting them at a length that was so long that the bundle was like 250 grams. The final exiting bundle would be like 250 grams, which is way too big for a portion, just huge. Yeah. So we needed to reportion all the noodles again. <laughs> well, now that you mentioned that, like, I just want to tell you that there's, there's a difference in width with the Yamato. I find the Yamato is pretty wide for the sheet, you know, that goes through the Oh, rollers. really? Like yeah. my Taisei is maybe, I don't know, three quarters of mm, the Yamato. Mm. So if you take, if you make a hundred gram noodle on a Yamato, it's super short, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. Probably like five inches long. Um, yeah. But on a Taisei, it would be a proper like portion proper length. length. Yeah. So you have to deal with that too. I, yeah. There's not really a workaround for that apart from just hand portioning each one. You could do like what some of these folks do, which is just scale it out during service. But man, you're going to be spending a lot of time scaling. Like, it's just part of the reality. Now you'd be scaling at home too, probably, right? Like it's unlikely that you'd just be cutting portions at home and just knowing you have the right amount, still got to make sure the weight is good. But there's these pieces of work that you don't anticipate that you think the machine will just do for you that like, it's not, you have to still do it. And if you want it to be done, you got to do it correctly. Um, so it's just been a process of learning all of those little things. I didn't realize I was going to have to scale out curly noodles when I make them, but you got to, sorry. It's part yeah. of the process. Have you tried adjusting the silicone? 
so many times, like three or four times now. Yeah. Right. And and it's it's a headache, right? It just, yeah, super headache. It's not easy. Whatever to do. you do, oh, it doesn't come out right. So listeners, to be clear here, you can adjust the silicone flaps are just these two kind of flaps that just they're not like overlapping, but they're sitting kind of near the exit of the teeth of the cutters. And so you can adjust how close or wide apart those those flaps are. And depending upon how close or wide apart the gap is between those flaps is how curly or how not curly those noodles will be. So the problem is like, how do you guess? You have to like, just guess at the actual distance. It's like, you have no idea if you've nailed it, you know, and you yeah. can't know until you actually make a batch of noodles on it. So I've gone through like three or four different iterations of like what I think the right gap is to find the appropriate amount of curl and, you know, then at some point you're going to have to take it apart to clean it. And then you're going to have to remember what that gap is to redo it again. So it's like a little bit of feel. There's not like a, a rule I feel like. Yeah. So just to kind of get a picture of it, as the sheet comes through the cutter and gets cut, those strands will rub against the silicone rubber or the silicone uh, plate. And that will in turn give it a curl. So as you widen that gap, then the curl will become less curly and more like wavy, right? Right, exactly. But it's like, how curly do you want it? And there's not like a rule that says, oh, if the flaps are X amount of millimeters apart, you're gonna get a certain curl. It's like, you just need to make a batch on it and see like how it turns out. And yeah, so it's like, I'm learning what that is too you know, and it's just, it's just different, you know, I don't know. It's interesting though. I feel like I love, the other thing is I like lots of curly noodles and Tamomi noodles and stuff. And so I think that hand portioning is going to probably be in my future. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it took a while, you know, we did a pop-up on Monday and I had a guy portioning for me and it took him like over an hour to do 160 portions. So it's like, it takes a while, you know? You know, well, I kind of want to talk about the design too, because I've seen the big industrial, you know, noodle manufacturers, machines, and the way they do it is really different because as for Yamato, as the sheet comes through, the sheet will go through the cutter and then that portion cut, the, the horizontal cut will come before the cutter. Oh, so, interesting. So that's why the cutters will pull the noodles down to keep going and then that next sheet comes in through the cutter and that's what pushes down the noodles that get stuck right so mm -hmm. but in a bigger like industrial machine you have the wavy attachment into the cutter but the noodles don't get cut horizontally until like later on so, so after they exit the machine interesting yeah so as you know it's getting curled it's still one strand being pulled through so there's no like break where it would have a chance to get stuck interesting so, yeah, maybe so one idea is like listening and they could kind of change that design <laughs> to the machine. <laughs> one idea, though, that comes to mind when you say that, though, is could you hand cut the noodles after they exit the, the curler? You could. You, your accuracy would be all messed up. But yeah, and it just is a labor that component that you don't probably want to deal with. Right. You need some long scissors. Yeah. <laughs> and, long and you got to like kind of stop it. Um, or you can do what. Well, yeah, if you can have multiple people doing it, then one person could just cut sheets at the appropriate length. It's still hard. It's just yeah. like, it's not going to, it's not going to work. Like 
currently as it's set up, you have to do the additional labor to get the, the curly noodles. And so I can understand why many chefs feel incentivized to do the straighter noodles because it's definitely a, a time saver in that regard. And I think that's the last learning for me is like, I want to be faster. I want to be smarter. I want to be more knowledgeable, but I, I also don't want to forego the things that I think I like in my ramen, right? Like, yeah. I don't want to be like, Hmm, well, it is easier to do a 31% on this machine. So that's what I'm going to do. I feel like that's an easy trap to fall into. I think it's like, ultimately I need to design a noodle that fits the specs that I want and tastes and eats the way that I want it to first, and then figure out how to make it easier on myself, as opposed to trying to like, uh, just find the recipe that's the easiest. And I guess I've noticed that in Chicago, at least many people have very similar noodles on these machines because of that problem. That is, they find a recipe that really works and is easy. And it's all kind of the same, like 30% hydration, certain amount of constancy, certain flour composition thing. Yeah. It's like, well, can't you do something else? Like ramen is so wide and vast. There's more noodles than just a Tokyo noodle, basically, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, especially if they have a machine, then... I mean, Keza, what did you do? You've had two, you have two machines. What, which one did you primarily use when you were making noodles at Shimamoto Seimet? I primarily used the Taisei. Yeah, interesting. Uh, the Yamato was good for like low hydration, like Hakata mm -hmm. noodles, because yeah. the rollers are so strong. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it does better in making that initial sheet. And I felt like they tasted better on a Yamato. Um, mm. what, what I did, you know, I kind of took advantage of both machines. And because of that whole cutting length that I mentioned earlier, like I would roll the initial, you know, three steps in lamination with the Taisei. And then I'd use the Yamato to roll it out and cut. So <laughs> that way... <laughs> It's 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 like well unorthodox, right? <laughs> yeah, but but it worked. I mean, it came out the perfect length because Yamato at 100 grams for Hakata noodles, like really really thin. Um, so long. You know, number 26. Those yeah would be super long, and I feel like Americans can't really work with long noodles, especially if like they're in a in a bowl of ramen. Um, yeah, so that's an interesting point. Like. What kind of noodles do Americans like? I have not made up my mind on this one. I feel like Keizo, you've worked in the industry long enough to know like what your customer base liked, but I know what kind of noodles I like and I don't see them anywhere. And so I'm like, what noodles do people like actually? Yeah. I mean, I apologize for saying Americans and putting it like general, <laughs> but I think, yeah, I kind of don't want to get into that really because I don't want to think like oh americans only like this and just make that right because we're trying sure. to push and introduce new things to to the the sure the american culture and i kind of well, rather I, be like let's make this and if if they don't like it then we just say this is this is how it is Get yeah i guess what i to expand on what i mean is do you feel like the current market is more saturated with a certain type of noodle. And is some of that because of the machines that are, that people are using or the producers are making a certain type of noodle. And where do you see the opportunity to introduce new noodle variants or new noodle styles to a broader American audience? 
Yeah, well, when I started blogging back in 2007, 2008, my, my chief complaint was going to all these ramen shops and just people using the same exact noodle like the soups would change the toppings would change but every single bowl kind of felt like it had the same generic noodle and when I started actually making ramen when I built my factory in New York my whole business plan was based upon like giving a shop a more premium noodle more choice more custom to kind of uh, showcase their craft right if they're spending all yes. this time on making the soup from scratch and and have this bowl of ramen that they're trying to achieve in their heads if they can't do it because the noodle constraints the noodle manufacturers are only making one similar type of noodle then you'll never be able to feel comfortable with the bowl you're making so i felt like when i built shimamoto noodle i wanted to give people a more premium type of noodle for those shops that really wanted to go the next level and could not afford a machine of their own or could not even have space for a machine of their own. So that was kind of my niche, you know, doing that premium noodle. And I'm trying to do that with the the big noodle manufacturers as well. Um, you know, working for Miojo, like it would be great. Like I've already put out three of my recipes that is part of a natural line that is available oh, cool. for customers, you know. And shout outs to that plug do you want to you can put a little uh, link to buy somewhere i don't know in the in the show notes well yeah. if, if you're a restaurant definitely try to contact them and see if you can get them because it, it is an alternative to making your own noodles but also you know having something closer to what you would be able to do on your own mm. um, hopefully we can make more uh variations and work with other ramen shops but also even because of guys like you like ramen lord and the community the ramen community that has kind of been generated off of your work and my work i guess like we're starting to educate people on what to look for mm -hmm. and i think that that will sort of guide the next ramen evolution in america right mm -hmm. yeah i mean that's no longer talking about the noodle machine but i do think that's an important topic which is like where i think we talk about this all the time though so i don't want to bore people listening but it's like where is ramen going yeah. i think there is this craft element and i hate the term craft i feel like it's just like this corny it's like what does that mean like craft ramen okay we all kind of know what we're talking about. We're talking about that bespoke, distinct, uh, unique, very controlled, regimented, kodawari, whatever. I've been on this podcast for complaining about that one too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there's not like a great word for it, but we all know what we're talking about, which is like this kind of new wave of, of ramen in, in the United States, for sure. And some of it is noodle making. There's no question. It's just knowing what ingredients or what types of noodles you want to introduce to customers that are better suited for your particular bowl, because a lot of the market is currently saturated by a handful of SKUs and they're all kind of the same. And so it does give you an opportunity to differentiate, but what does that mean for America's ramen landscape? Um, you know, ramen making is still hard. It's like not easy. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's never going to be easy, especially in America cuz I don't know, we've we've talked a lot like 
off of the podcast and I've expressed frustration within the business side and I've even said I'm done I kind of want to do it anymore but right I get it but you know um but I mean I still push through because I love ramen so much I think that's why we all do it though yeah right like at the end the reason I want to open a restaurant is because I love ramen and I feel like ramen can just be so much better and it takes I just don't know how else to get there without pushing others to do it. I think you and I, you said a similar thing last time we were talking. You're like, I hope that my me doing what I'm doing, that everyone else elevates their game a little bit and pushes up. And I've heard this from other chefs too. Like uh, Yume Okatare said the same thing. They're like, you know, if I, I don't fear competition at all, competition makes me better and it's going to make everybody's ramen better in the same way. So, but there's no way to have that impact. I feel like in a lot of ways, like you know, I put all my recipes out for free. So like you can steal whatever you want from me. Like, I don't, I don't care anymore. It's like, at this point, it's like, how do we make it for people? Because it's hard to make it for yourself. So to me, that's felt like the natural trajectory and similarly how to get, um, just better and better ramen in the U S I think the noodles is the, is the most obvious part of the, the movement here. In fact, I think more people are making noodles from scratch in America than we would expect, right? It's probably because of the economics of buying noodles and buy, and trying to pair them with like the kind of ramen you want to make. It's not as easy as in Japan where it's like you got a manufacturer and 20 of them in Tokyo or whatever who you can pick from and they'll make something custom for you. You've got like three options. And so if you really yeah. want to do something your way, I mean, I think... So there's the economics of it. And there's also just, you know, America and wheat go hand in hand historically. So it's not like it's unheard of for us to be tinkering with these products, these ingredients. It's much harder to tinker with these imported ingredients like sababushi and katsuobushi and niboshi, which are expensive and not as easily to get in. But America is rich in the history of its wheat and agriculture in that regard. And so it's a natural fit to think like, okay, I'm not making uh pastry i'm not making cake i'm not making bread but noodles it's kind of like intuitive to me like it, it feels like a natural fit and so for the future of america's round team i think noodles are an incredibly important part of the the landscape and admittedly part of my thoughts on that are also that i just love noodles <laughs> like noodles yeah. are my favorite part of the ramen like <laughs> i've just gradually accepted that as i've like made them more it's like hands down noodles are my favorite part like, I love a good noodle. It's just well, my favorite. What do you think, though? Like, America is so big and people say, oh, there's so much opportunity in America for ramen. Um, but then I, I kind of feel like because it's so big, that's why it takes so long to kind of spread. And mm, I feel like we're going to mm. be doing this for, you know, till till we're till gone we, and like generations to come, right? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but maybe. I mean, we're starting something. Um, the big cities definitely have more ramen shops, more quality ramen, uh, but also like they're more accessible to getting the noodles from manufacturers. That's why you see people in the Midwest like Mochiko and Menyarui and yourself like, you know, gravitating towards a machine because it's probably easier to get a machine and make your own noodles rather than find a way to get distribution into your city. Right. So who knows, like the the rural areas of america might start a, the real kodawari ramen boom in america 
Maybe. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know where it's going to happen. I, I think that you, you bring up a great point, of course, which is that it's clear that, you know, like Show You Shop India is another place that has their own Yamato noodle machine. Uh, many of these places in the Midwest or even in the South, you know, like Ramen 512, Vin was just talking about how he's going to get a noodle machine too, right? He's looking for what? And yeah, it, it's just... It, it's about that flexibility, I think. And American chefs in particular are a little stir crazy. They don't like to like just do the same thing over and over again for the most part. They like to mix it, mix it up. And mixing it up is hard when you only have a certain number of ramen noodles to pick from. You like to be like, hmm, I want to do a big thick noodle today. Hmm, I want to change it. I want to do a thin wispy little soft noodle or I want to do like a medium curly one or I want to do one with whole wheat or I want to put like chili powder in it or whatever crazy nonsense people are doing these days. And Americans are pretty unbridled by tradition in a lot of ways. So the experimentation kick is like very addictive for a lot of chefs. They like to tinker. They like to be like, what is this crazy thing? And noodles are an easy way to do that because we're familiar with flour and dough. Like it's harder in the other components, I think. Like tare is a very foreign concept to Americans, right? Like it's foreign to me. I've been making ramen for 12 years and I'm still like, what am I doing? What is this? What, how am I making this tare? <laughs> Scratching my head and being like, does this make sense? <laughs> doing <laughs> like soup, you know, it's like you kind of just find these principles, but noodle making, I think is definitely at this frontier. And I think that noodles are like the most approachable part of ramen for a lot of people, particularly outside of these big multicultural cities where these flavors are a little more foreign, right? Like whether you like it or not, to a person who is in the middle of bumfuck nowhere, dashi is kind of a weird flavor to them. But a noodle is not that weird. Like a noodle is yeah. pretty is pretty typical for a person in America. We eat pasta, we eat chicken noodle soup, like we eat noodles. That, that's not a weird thing. So I see like the growth of it through the noodle in a lot of ways. The trajectory of ramen as a serious thing in the United States in a lot of ways comes through the noodle as it's easy to understand conduit. That's not to say that the other component shouldn't be either. I think there's lots of opportunity there, but the easiest venue, right? The one with the least resistance is going to be the noodle. It's going to be the easiest to sell into people. It's going to be the easiest to actually execute in terms of like getting the ingredients that are appropriate. And it's going to be the easiest to just talk about. Like, it's easy to talk about how we make our own noodles. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Everyone gets what that is. Everyone understands like, oh, you make the noodle. That's cool, right? Now the key is to make them good. <laughs> I know plenty of people who make the noodles and they don't do a good job and I won't put them on blast. So they have to still be good, but you can make them good. And when they're good, they're, they're awesome. They're super good. Yeah. Whether small scale or large scale, you know, just trying to make them good is, is generally the key. Uh, I don't know, like going back to the big cities, like making noodles is good and you can really like make the noodle match your soup um, but at the same time when your volume is so much higher like you're putting out like hundreds maybe even thousands of bowls per day like to make your own noodles really becomes a strain on your ability to to make money i guess um, yeah. so like i think that's why in the big cities a lot of these shops also kind of just gravitate towards, towards the manufacturers um, because but they're you know, they're doing it for all the components right like they're not just doing it for the noodle it's like when you're selling yeah. a thousand bowls a day you can't be making the tare 
you can't be making the soup necessarily. If you are, you're, you're figuring out the easiest way to do it so that you can do like 20 pots at a time or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, well, there's, there's definitely some tricks there that, <laughs> that we won't tricks get into. The case I won't comment <laughs> on. Yes. I mean, um, the reality is like craft and quantity are not aligned with one another. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You have to recognize that to do something in an artistic, highly focused, specialized and fluid way is in, is insurmountably different than doing something in a large scalable way. Scaling is, is effective when it is consistent and when it is thorough and when it doesn't change. And that's not craft, right? Craft is evolving and manipulated and adjusted and thoughtful and, you know, accounted for in terms of like the artist's rendition of what they're trying to accomplish. And so the two are just at odds with one another. I think candidly, what needs to happen is like craft people got to charge more and that requires conveying the value of what they bring to the table as craftsmen in the scene, right? I think the problem that faces ramen is like, it's hard to convey that. People think it's just noodle soup. They're like, why does this cost so yeah. much? You know? Well, it's hard to even convince the customer that it truly is craft, right? Because you have ramen just getting, you know, pricier wherever we go, especially in the big cities. I mean, just New York kind of started it with the $20 bowl. Um, but even in LA now, you have, which historically was like a lower price bowl compared to New York. Like you could, you could still get like a bowl around $10 here. Um, but nowadays it's starting to become 16, 17, 18. Right. Mm -hmm. And even if the craft will go up to, let's say, like, I, I think Tokyo has a real problem with this as well. Like more than yes. they would here. Um, but let's say, okay, someone who's really into the craft, making everything from scratch, you know, taking the time to do it properly. If they start charging like $30 a bowl, <laughs> like what's going to happen? Are people going to pay that? And then yeah. the, the guys that are not charging that much, they see that we are charging that much. So they're going to start raising their prices too. So I don't know, it kind of makes everything out of whack, I guess. And I, I don't know how I feel about that anymore because to me still, you know, I, I appreciate like if ramen is more of a cheap food and I feel bad in a sense, charging like 20, $30 for a bowl, but I do know the hours and time that go into it. So mm -hmm. it's, that's kind of why I, think I it's get like, frustrated. Yeah. I mean, the problem is, the problem is that you are very knowledgeable about ramen from a historical perspective and you recognize and saying, you know, to a certain degree, me too, like you recognize that the historical significance of this dish is from a certain level of poverty, is from a certain level of approachability for anyone, not just uh, a dish that is for a certain echelon of individuals. It's not like udon, which is like rooted in kind of this regal, uh, you know, hoity-toity dining that existed in Japan, where they're using the most refined flowers and the most elegant plating it's like ramen is for immigrants and poor people frankly like that's the history of this dish and so it does feel a little ostentatious to be like but i gotta charge 25 bucks for this bowl now like that seems a little crazy and i've gotten similar feedback right like this pop-up we did on monday we charged 20 bucks for this bowl and sure it was in line with food costs but there's a lot of labor that goes into that dish too like you yeah. can't discount the amount of time it takes to make all these components 
we didn't even have soup. I can't, it's like, how much more time would we have had if we had to make the soup <laughs> for this one too? You know? So yeah. I hear you, but at the same time, like I'm of the philosophy that we should charge what we need to charge as, as people, like you need to have a livelihood. I need to have a livelihood and we need to do as good of a job as we can conveying why it's worth that. Like it's a, it's really like a marketing thing. I feel like, I feel like we use these terms like craft or these kind of buzzwordy terms that don't convey how brutally difficult it is to make this dish at home or at scale or by yourself. And that just means that people oversight it. They just see the price. Like they're just like, yeah, but it's, it's not $10 like this place down the street. So I don't care. Yeah. But I think there's a niche enough audience that will care because there that's true for a lot of other dishes in the United States. Like pizza is a great example of this. There's cheap and expensive pizza. There's cheap and expensive burgers. There's cheap and expensive fried chicken. And they all do the same thing where it's like the cheap place is buying the pre-butchered stuff and the pre-marinated stuff or the pre-breaded stuff. They're buying the, the pre-ground meat, the pre-baked buns, the cheap stuff. And there's more expensive places we're making in a house and they figure out a way to convey that value. And we as a ramen community just need to be way better at that. It's tough to convey it because it seems to combat the historical roots of the dish. But if we don't do it, then we're all going to be stuck competing with guys who don't make anything and the quality is going to suffer and we won't be able to stand out. So I haven't figured out how to do that. Of course not. It's a super brutal, difficult challenge for all of us. But I think that that's the root cause of like our concerns. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't think we'll ever figure it out. But as long as we're kind of... <laughs> okay, so, so everyone, <laughs> Kezo, you're clearly more of a, a skeptic and maybe a pessimist than I am, but I don't know. Well, I mean, it's going to be an ongoing battle, but as long as, you know, we stay true to our heart with what we're trying to make, then I think that's yeah. the best thing we can do. I think the other thing is we need to rally together. Like it can be very, very easy to just see one another's like competition, but really there's like what a couple dozen of us in the United States who give enough of a shit to do this whole thing from scratch every day. So like we need to work together in a meaningful way. And whether that, that means like, you know, doing collaborations with one another, like I literally during this podcast, Kyle from show you shop and he messaged me being like, do you want to come down and do like a collab dinner? Like we should do that. That sounds awesome. Right? Like those are the ways that we build more of that knowledge, but also what I mean is sharing knowledge with one another. And I think we're starting to get that. Like I get messages all the time from people who own machines, but I wish it was like, instead of being reactive, you were proactive about the sharing, right? Like instead of waiting until I mess up and being like, oh yeah, I don't do that anymore. And it's like, oh, well, that would have been nice to have known about two months ago when I started doing that, right? You know, it's like, how can we be more proactive in guiding one another to create better ramen? The more we can elevate all of our game, the easier it's going to be to differentiate ourselves and easier it's going to be to demonstrate the value. This is a value question foundationally for most people. It's like, yeah. why would I pay $20 when I can pay 14? I don't see the value, the extra six buck value, but there is, we just are not good at conveying it right now. Yeah. Well, I think America being big also kind of hinders our ability to yes. work together. Like if we were in Tokyo, I see like all my Tokyo friends, you know, they're, they're relatively in driving distance to each other. And if something goes wrong, Imagine if Ramen 512 Vin says, oh, I want to start making noodles. And if I was like a few miles away from him making noodles and I could be like, hey, I'll start making your noodles right. too, right? Like we right. can't do that here 
because America is so huge and I feel yeah, so like this is a great example, right? Like uh, this, this guy Payson, I think I'm saying his name, right? He's from Zao Stamina Ramen. Yeah. He came over to my apartment earlier this week because he's getting a Yamato and he's like, I don't know how to use a machine. And if he was in Tokyo, he'd just do a little skip and a hop to, you know, to some person's other place to learn. And like, they could talk and they could discuss like ideas and just have a quick little powwow. The proximity way makes the community stronger. I feel like that's always been the biggest challenge for us. It's yeah. the, the size. It's like, we all love it. We all agree. We want to help each other. We all want ramen to be better in the US. But it's like, dude, you live in Oregon or you live in California. I can't like, I can't just fly out there for an afternoon. <laughs> it's expensive. Yeah. Cause even as simply like, say you had a restaurant and I don't know, you got sick, you couldn't run your shop. I could come over and just be like, run the shop for a day. <laughs> right. Right. Little, <laughs> little residency. Out, right? It's not a big deal. Right. Yeah. Like the proximity makes it harder. So, yeah, I, that's really the biggest challenge. And it's always been the challenge for the community. I think we have a strong community, but in America, it's like we're, we're everywhere. So you don't have like a deep enclave of all these people in one particular location where you can congregate and help each other out. So luckily we have the internet, but it's not as good as being in person. I'm a firm believer that like learning and education and uh, growth occurs person to person, face to face. And there's only so much you can gather from the digital nature of the things that we do, right? I mean, it's true for recipes, but it's true for even this conversation, right? Like if you were here, you'd look at the same amount and be like, well, Mike, your pressing technique's a little weird. Like you need to do X, Y, Z or like yeah. here, this thing looks mixed enough, like turn this machine off, right? Like you can give those little insights that you have about the process in person that are just like unquestionably impossible in the current situation that we're in. So I don't know how to solve that. I think it starts with just, you know, keeping the gates open in terms of the communication. I'm like the firmest believer in transparency, right? Like I have no secrets. I'll tell anybody anything if they ask, I, I got nothing to hide. It's literally in a book if you care, like <laughs> you can do whatever you want. You're, we're not gonna get better around without that being that proactive sharing, like yeah. share I, uh, like yeah. your life depends on it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so there's like, that's good and all like trying to be open and definitely I'm open for the most part, unless you're just asking me stupid stuff. But uh, just one example, like Menya Hosaki, Eric, you know, I practically like he studied under me. I practically taught him right. um, what, whatever he needed to open up his shop. And, you know, sometimes he'll be working on something and I guess he has the pride to kind of just figure out himself and he won't ask me, even though I'm just a phone call or text away. Mm -hmm. And there's been times where I said, like, dude, you should just told me I could have just <laughs> given you my some ideas. Yeah, yeah like, <laughs> like I could steer you like what I've done wrong. And I can tell you that and steer you in the right direction mm -hmm. so you can figure out like faster. But, you know, I guess there's that pride involved of and and he always says, like, oh, I don't want to bother you. But mm -hmm. it's, I don't know. There has to be some sort of, like, better, I don't know, better know. access for the community to just kind of band together. And well, if you figure out how to crystallize it and make it a reality, let me know. Because I'm, I'm definitely <laughs> in alignment. But it's a great point, right? Like, I feel the same about myself, too. It's like, I'm learning all this stuff on the Yamato. And, you know, I kind of feel weird. Like I message a couple people, but like, I don't know. I just don't want to 
be a burden to people. And I certainly don't want to treat people as like a means to an end in a lot of ways. I'm very, I'm very particular about that. That's kind of like my own mental cross to bear, I suppose. But it's like, I don't want, I have been used, it's going to sound crazy, but like I have been, (laughs) I've put myself in a position where I'm often that, right? Like when you put information out into the world, people will use it for their own means, disregarding your humanity, right? It's like, you're just a person, it's just resource and I grab it and then I go about my business and I live my life. And so I've become very used to being treated that way on the internet. I just get questions from people who will never speak to me ever again. And it's just like unequivocally share. And I wouldn't want to do that to somebody if they're going to give me something that's so valuable, right? If they're going to really help me learn how to make a new better, they're not just some person on the, at this phase in my ramen making journey, they're not just some individual anymore. Like I'm not just talking to you or to Eric or to Kyle as just like, these people who just give me info, like these are meaningful contributors to our, to the culture of the ramen in the United States. And they deserve the respect and therefore need to be treated as humans, not just people who are like (laughs) gushing information and then get left alone. And so I can understand like the pressure to like, not do that. Like Eric is a good guy and he doesn't want to treat you like that. Basically he's saying like, you know, you're not, you're my, you're like my mentor in a lot of ways. I don't want to just like grab information from you and bounce, you know? Yeah. And it can feel that way when you're just like peppering somebody with questions. Hey, like, have you ever done this noodle before? (laughs) But I think for, for me and him, our relationship, like he, he does, you know, text me some stupid shit all the time too. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he's going to listen to this, right? (laughs) Well, he knows I tell him like, I'll tell him like when it's right, I'll tell him figure it out yourself that you've done this this long you know how to do this and this you can figure this out on yourself (laughs) yes yes i see interesting that's so funny yeah but i mean it's it's all about balance right with anything well yeah i mean and the other part of it is you don't want people to be so like the problem i think too with information sharing coincidentally is that it's easy to kind of get trapped in the way somebody else told you to do something and not like experiment. And so some amount of learning involves the necessary trial and error and mistake making that comes with diving into new territory on your own. Right. So, you know, you gotta learn, you gotta, you're going to have to do some stupid stuff. I mean, I've done some stupid stuff on this machine. I have done so many dumb things on this machine. I like accidentally one of the brushes, they give you like these kind of brushes that are made of plastic that you're supposed to like sweep up the the residual uh, flower. One time, one of the brushes got into the rollers, like it just straight up went into the roller and was like getting, it got crushed. Like, because again, beefy roller does not care about plastic brush. So I like, you can do some insane, but you need to do that because now like me making this horrible, awful mistake I know exactly what I need to put this brush so that will never happen ever again. I know how to be more disciplined with like where I'm placing stuff in the machine and how I'm using things. Those mistakes, those silly things helped me be a better person for the long run, even though it was kind of embarrassing and I've now shared it with everybody. Yeah, well, let's kind of get into the safety aspect of the Yamato because I think it is pretty important. Those rollers, like like you said, it just obliter- obliterated the brush. So this is a plastic, heavy-duty brush. It's made of like a very sturdy, very strong plastic. You could not break this thing with your hands if you didn't want to. But it fell into the rollers, and it was completely decimated. Like, 
It was warped. It was bent. It was cracked. The rollers don't care. If you get your hand gets in that thing, your hand is gone. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah, I, I once made the mistake of trying to wipe the roller as it was rolling with a rag. And that rag kind of got caught in between the roller and it just took it straight in. I couldn't even pull it out. I couldn't stop the machine and pull it out. So I had to just let it go. And when that rag came out the other end, it was literally like a piece of cardboard paper, you know, construction paper. That's how <laughs> strong the roller is. And yeah. I can't I can't imagine like if your hand gets stuck in there, you know, what it will do to your hand. And unfortunately, like this has happened to somebody in Japan. And that's why Yamato really put all these safety features in place. Um, like they have a guard while you're pushing in the soboro into the roller. Mm-hmm, if that guard mm-hmm. gets propped up, the machine stops automatically. Um, because your hand is not supposed to fit underneath the guard. And if mm. it if you try to squish it in too hard, that guard will prop up. And there's also yes. the, the mixer. The mixer needs to have the lid on in order for it to run. Because if you have a a running mixer that's open, like sometimes you have the, you feel the need, oh, something is in there that's not right. And you stick your hand in with, you know, the mixer going on, that that mixer is gonna take your whole arm off. So dude, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy how dangerous these machines are. And so even though the safety features, I think can feel a little like in the way, so to speak, like I certainly would love to be able to get these thicker, chunkier pieces of dough into the rollers without having to move the guard, but yeah. <laughs> I'd rather not lose my hand. So <laughs> I think, I like think when you got the machine, hand. I immediately sent you some pictures on how to yes. like, get, get around the safety feature. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I won't, I won't say I anything like, here though. I was like, every chef I've met is like, yo, well, you can just like put this little thing and then you can mix it without the lid on. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Oh my God. <laughs> like I get it. It's like, you want, it's very tempting, but man, at the end of the day, like I've heard some horror stories about people getting their hands caught in these machines and you just got to be safe, right? Like safety is priority number one with these machines. Again, as I always keep saying, the Yamato does not care. It does not care if you like it. It does not care if you do not like it. It does not care if the dough is firm, brittle, soft, whatever. It will turn on and it will roll and that's it. And so if your hand is in the roll, your hand's going in the roll. Like it's part of the roll now. It, you have become one with the noodle. So you, you got to be careful, man. This thing is super dangerous. And I think that those little mistakes are just kind of like, just a little bit of wake up call is kind of helpful to make some mistakes, I guess is what I'm saying. And mistakes are how you learn. You have to be willing to fail a little bit in order to hopefully not ruin your hand fail, but like you be <laughs> willing to like make some mistakes in order to learn. Like I certainly feel like I learn more when I experience a negative thing than when I experience a positive thing on this machine, right? Yeah. Definitely so, don't wear a necktie while making noodles. <laughs> so Kazo, you used to wear like a full-on garb when you made noodles. You had like a jumpsuit and a hairnet and like a mask and all this stuff. Do you feel like that's necessary or was that just like a discipline thing for you? Well that was more of like you know factory setting. Yes. Um, because of my factory and I'm creating or I'm manufacturing noodles for other customers, other Robin shops. Yeah. So it, it's more like hygiene and um, doing things in accordance with the safety and health department of health guidelines. Okay. Actually, I have a um, question about this and I hate to admit this, but like, how do you sanitize this machine? 
You got to get a sanitizer spray. You need a sanitizer spray, yeah. And and let it dry completely. Yeah, just basically spray it down. Um, you can wipe, and then just let it dry. Damn, I need to get one of those then. Apparently, because I'm doing a lot of egg noodles, so. I mean, salmonella exists in eggs, obviously, uh, probably at a higher rate than you'd expect given how much egg you typically use in a big batch, but it also exists in flour. Like mm. flour can contain trace elements of salmonella, which is why people tell you to not eat raw cookie dough. It's not just the egg. It's like the flour too can also have salmonella in it. So you really do need to sanitize this thing down if you want to be safe, right? Yeah. To be fair, everything that comes out of this machine needs to be cooked thoroughly like very thorough you should not eat raw noodles you should cook your noodles please cook your noodles before consuming <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's like there's a sanitizing process and a cleaning process that needs to happen on this machine and it's not super intuitive to a home cook because there's a lot of components and the mixer is different and the roller is different and there's all these weird little things that you just notice the more you use this machine <laughs> oh my gosh but it's fun. Yeah. Well, I mean, the garb definitely like flour gets on you. So when I when I'd have to work in the factory and then go back to the ramen shack to make noodles, like if I have a black shirt on and go mm. make noodles in the factory, it's gonna come back white. <laughs> yeah. <right? laughs> so, yeah. So like yeah. So like uh, again, one thing that happens like you gotta load the hopper with 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 flour, right? So you weigh out the flour amount. Maybe you're doing 10 kilogram batch as an example. That's pretty typical. Maybe you put in a bus tub or something, some sort of tub that will fit into the mixer that you can fold it in. No matter what you do, when you pour that flour in, that flour is going to air, going to go into the air and yeah. cloud up everything. It doesn't matter how gentle you are and you're going to get some flour on you. Definitely. And with the, you know, the Uchiko. And the Uchiko. Uh, the starch, yeah. sprinkling the, the starch. That, that, fl that flies everywhere. Yeah, yeah, it gets everywhere. <laughs> My machine is like kind of below an air conditioning duct. And so if that air conditioner is running while my machine is going, it's like you can see the curtain of the flower like drift a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh no, this is gonna be brutal clean. Yeah. There's all these little things that you just don't recognize in a small scale. And it's just it's been kind of fun to learn that, but it's also like I have been punished mercilessly for my insubordination. So <laughs> You know, it's a cool machine though. I'm glad I have it. Sincerely glad I have it. And I'm excited to figure out and tinker and, and play. I think the last, the, the challenge for me in a little bit though, has been, I would love to just tinker and just make, make like batches on this thing, but it's so wasteful if I'm not consuming them. And I just do not have like, I can't eat 40 portions of noodles. <laughs> <laughs> You know, because the minimum mixer amount is four kilograms. So like, you're going to have like 30 something portions by the time you're done, probably. Yeah. And that's just a lot of noodle for one person to eat. So I've kind of felt a little bad when I do a batch and know that I'm going to throw away a bunch of it. But I think candidly for practice, at least you just have to expect that it's not going to be perfect anyway. And you got to be willing to kind of like this initial waste up front is going to make your final product better in the long run. So I've kind of rationalized that for myself, but you know, I feel bad, man. Make four kilogram batch. Sometimes I'll just invite people over. I'm like, please take these noodles from me. I don't want them. You can have them. It's fun. Though. Yeah. You should just start selling them somehow. <laughs> like how did, well, like Kezo, how did, you weren't always making noodles. When you started, you were buying them. 
And then you bought a machine. However, you got the machine you won't disclose, but you had a machine somehow and you were making noodles for ramen shack, but you didn't always make noodles. So like you had to have like a ramp up time of like, I got to figure this out. I got to learn the process. Like what were you doing to practice? So luckily, you know, when I was working in Japan, I did have noodles and I even went to the Yamato school way, way okay. back then. Uh, so I had experience on, and I had recipes that I've made before that I kind Got of it. knew um, what I wanted to do and what I wanted to make. And I did work with noodle manufacturers too um, in the past, just to kind of, uh, you know, develop those recipes. So when I did make the switch, it, it started with just one type, you know, um, definitely mm-hmm. not the tonkotsu. Um, I think I just made like a generic shoyu Tokyo mm-hmm. style noodle and I weave that into, but I mean, it, it was right away. Like, you know, even initially like that first batch I made, I took it to ramen shack and I started eating it with, with my soup. And I was like, Oh my God, it's so much better. So it was like, <laughs> <laughs> it was like from right away that I started making and using my own noodles at ramen shack which was kind of cool yeah so you're the lucky one because i think a lot of people make noodles for the first time and then yeah it's like a it's not good (laughs) (laughs) well i take that because you know i was already probably like six seven years into making Mm -hmm. ramen like professionally so I had a lot of experience and that, that helped a lot. I mean, I I probably would never have been able to make a noodle if I had no idea how to work the machine, if I had no idea what ingredients. Yeah. Um, like, you know, I, I knew how to source stuff, um, Mm -hmm. beforehand. Like I knew where to get the flour. I knew where to get kansu. Um, I had contacts in Japan to help me. So, I mean, I was pretty lucky. Yeah. It's definitely a learning process. I mean, I know how to make noodles. Like, let's be real clear. I have been making noodles forever. I have been making noodles, not as, not nearly as much volume as you, of course, but certainly have been making noodles with varying levels of intense success, including in pop-up of situations for like 10 years. So I know what constitutes a good noodle and what doesn't for my soup, but it is different on this machine. Like, and yeah. I think that's been the challenge for me is like, what's the recipe that's going to be the best for this machine? It's not the same as the one that I was using on like an Italian pasta machine, even one that's electric and like kind of beefy, you know, it's just different. Well, that's what makes it fun. I think. Yeah. You just have to be willing to experiment. Yeah. Going forward, there's going to be a lot of like moments that will humble you or keep humbling you. (laughs) (laughs) You think, you know, Uh, but no, dude, (laughs) I I literally, I literally tell people all the time, like I'm kind of an idiot with this machine right now. Like, I think I know stuff and then like, nope, whatever you thought is wrong. So, but it's kind of cool. It's good. And I like learning, obviously. I, I don't think I would keep doing this if I felt like I had nowhere else to go. In fact, it's been kind of nice to have this humbling experience because I felt like for a while, my ramen was kind of just like the same stuff over and over again. I wasn't really evolving it as much as I needed to. And this has definitely pushed me in that direction of evolving it and pushing it forward and making me more thoughtful about uh, the process. And the process is key for a restaurant. It's not, 
it, the, the food is like 10% of a restaurant. <laughs> it's like, you know, yeah. it's like, you can have a great product, but that's like 10% of the business. 90% of it's like the process and how you're going to bring all the pieces together to execute it over and over and over again in a way that's sufficient and, uh, you know, has people oh, yeah. involved in all this other stuff. And then and of there's, course, there's way more pieces than just the food. So it, yeah, the food is like the easy part. The food is the easy part. It's like, you got a good recipe. Okay, cool. Now like do it a thousand times a week and everyone has to know how to do it. And your kitchen has to be able to accommodate it. And it's gotta be in code and the space has to be clean and yeah. your vendors have to be paid <laughs> and the toilet needs to work. And <laughs> Staff and the plumbing, needs to be happy. Staff needs to be happy. And it's like, that's a business, right? So the well, machine so is also a conduit for that, you know? Yeah, speaking of restaurant, are we going to see a Akahoshi ramen anytime soon? I hope soon? so, man. I hope so. I don't have like a firm timeline right now, but I've been looking for spaces. So pending the finalization of a space, we shall see. Um, I'm ready to get destroyed. That's all I'll say. I'm, I'm eagerly ready for it. Keizo yeah, always always tells Keizo always <laughs> says don't do it, but it's too late for me. So it's too late. Yeah, I mean, you're at this point where you need to do it for yourself. Yeah. To really that's how I feel. Yourself. And yeah. I just, I just, yeah. I mean, I, I think about the worst case scenario a lot for me, which is like, okay, let's say I do this and it's like, what is the worst case scenario crashes and burns, or I just completely burn out and I hate it so much. And I'm just like, I'm over it. And it's like, you know what, but at least I did it. And I can say to myself, like, now I know I'm just like, if I look back on my life 10 years from now and say, I didn't do it. There's just only regret, you know, it's just like, I wish I had. And I just feel like I can't do that anymore in my life. So now's the time. Better, better late than never, I suppose. The, the worst case scenario is that you'll end up like me. <laughs> what do you mean a ramen god? Because that's like not terrible. Like I'm fine with that. Like that seems pretty dope, actually. Like <laughs> it's like who's right, the well, ramen? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't know why you guys think I'm so high up here, but um oh I, well it's like I'm trying to be humble, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean the, I mean, I need to you don't learn. need to be. It's like you and I are, there's a couple of <laughs> figureheads in this community that are just like, have just contributed a lot in terms of pushing the thought of the dish in the right direction. And I think you are one of those people because of your intense knowledge. And this is not meant to just be like a session to butter you up, but it's true. Like you have more knowledge about the dish, I think, than most people in the United States. You are wildly passionate about it for a long time, right? You have a long pedigree of being passionate about it. And also you're delivering like the ramen you made was consistently some of the best ramen wherever you were located. So like, it wasn't just being a nerd for ramen. I know, we know lots of ramen nerds who don't know how to make ramen. <laughs> There's lots of people who just like to eat it and don't know anything about how to make it. Right. Those are two separate things. Yeah. You combine those confluences. And I think because you were delivering such high quality ramen, it inspired other people to want to make better ramen. And that's kind of what I want to do too. Like I shared a lot about how to make ramen and democratized it, but now I want to like show people what's possible consistently, right? How do you make this dish at the level it needs to be consistently in a big city like Chicago, where in my opinion, it's not being done at the level it needs to be done at, you know? Uh, well, well, that can you. We'll find out. Well, thank you for the kind words. I mean, I have a lot of respect for you as well, seeing you grow within this community. And I can't wait to eat at Akahoshi Ramen someday. And hopefully we can keep this going. Um, of course, man. 
I don't think we're ever going to end. Like I told, like I said, you know, it, it's going to be a never ending battle for ramen in America. Um, but we all need to keep pushing and, you know, band together. Absolutely, man. Well, thanks for being on. Like I'm honored for this and I think I'm honored we... to be here and you know how to reach me. If you ever want me to chat or come back on and complain about something, have you do that. We can be more, we can be way more, uh, way more like uh, fiery and rude next time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did kind of go off on a tangent, but I'm glad we steered it back to <laughs> making noodles. Machine. You um, can tell but... that Kezo and I just talk about this <laughs> stuff all the time. It's like, oh my God. Yeah, maybe we got to do like some monthly ramen talk with the ramen lord or something. All right, let me know. We'll talk because, about it. Yeah, you're constantly evolving. And who knows, like, we need to get together too soon. And I know, I know. I, I regret that I didn't get out to LA, but I'm sure we will. We will figure that out soon enough. All right, man. Well, thanks for coming on. Pleasure to be here, man. Thank Take you care. for your time. All right. See ya.